We started off so well because we were talking about Jaws. I know, right? You know? <laughs> and it just it just went downhill quick. Let's go back to Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> Episode 14 of the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson. And as usual, of course, I'm joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, you have not learned your lesson. I just keep coming back for more. I, I'm glutton for punishment, I guess. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not sure if that says more about you or me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> are you, how are you guys holding up? We're still holding up pretty well. I'm on a house project about 200 and number, I think, yeah, but number 205 at this point. So I'm doing great. I just keep finding more and more things I need to fix about my house and just got to go back to Home Depot every weekend. That's what actually being in your house will do to you. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's like when you've been in a, in a long-term relationship and all of a sudden all the flaws in the person that you <laughs> start to become painfully obvious. Yeah. It's yeah. that. <laughs> just, you know, a coat of paint fixes everything. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're painting your cabinets still? Painting my cabinets. Yeah. My, my, my paint sprayer came in uh, yesterday. I'm very excited to break out my new paint sprayer and finish my kitchen cabinets this weekend. Nice. Best of luck. <laughs> Thanks. I, I wish you good luck and no residual work for uh, other people to be cajoled into. Right. <laughs> That's what I'm looking yeah. forward to. Yeah. Well, if it works out, I will actually have another skill. You know, if this whole lawyer thing doesn't work out, I can paint kitchen cabinets apparently then at that point. So we'll see. That's really smart. I, <laughs> as I've told you before, I literally have no other gainful skills. So I might invest in some YouTube videos to figure something out. Exactly. So you got to have that backup plan at all, at all times. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you this because you have a bunch of dogs. My dog is uh, bored mm -hmm. and the way that she shows us that she's bored is everywhere I go, she'll follow me around. Everywhere I go though, she'll just like lay down and sleep immediately. <laughs> There's no like trying to be into what I'm doing or like checking things out. It's just like, I go there, I sit down, she immediately falls over and is comatose. Aww. She has to be near you. No, my, mine are a little different. Mine is wherever I go, they bring a toy. And then that toy is just squeaking the entire time. Or it's it's a Kong toy that needs to be filled up with peanut butter. It's or or it's the stuffing from a a toy that was actually a toy and is now just <laughs> completely destroyed. Yeah. Well, you you probably have more interactive dogs than I do. That's what it sounds like to me. Yeah, they just they've got a lot of energy, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. Hey, they'll help you paint. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, we've painted before with our dogs when we did the rest of our house, and uh, the dogs were full of paint by the end of it. Nice. They, they don't realize that there's a wet paint, you know, a wall, and they'll just still mm. kind of go right up against it, which is great because, you know, now my walls also have hair stuck to them near the bottom. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, it makes it unique. That's texturing. Yes. <laughs> Some people pay good money for that. Yeah, right? I, I get it for free from my dogs. Brilliant. <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, not necessarily ruin this conversation with our guests, but ruin this conversation somewhat topically by talking about the CARES Act changes to the tax and retirement plan rules. I mean, I, I feel like we've been talking about this 
for years, but it's really only been a couple months. Uh, but I didn't think there was really a better person on the planet to have that conversation with than Nicole Harrigan. Nicole is a partner and CPA at the firm Riger Car Monroe, RCM, for those in the know. Uh, she's a good friend of ours and someone we've known for a long time and worked with and someone we really admire. And uh, Nicole, uh, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. I'm happy to be here. I'm excited to do this. I've never done a podcast before. Well, consider yourself initiated. <laughs> Sorry, I've got a, a little totally, one running. I can behind. totally see him walking behind you. Awesome. <laughs> That's supposed to be asleep right now. <laughs> <laughs> so what is mom doing? Yes. He was so disappointed to hear that dad was going to fix it. Oh, yeah. That's about the reaction I get too. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, the kids came in and said, come take us to bed. And I said, I can't, I've got something to do for work. I said, daddy's going to take you to bed tonight. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I get that reaction too. I do. I think so. Um, yeah. I just have a much less elaborate go to bed ceremony. <laughs> some, some might say it's, a less caring uh, go to bed ceremony. I think it's that's much more like you have jammies on. Yeah. You went to the bathroom. Yeah. Recently. Yeah. Okay. We got two down. Uh, you brush your teeth. Yep. I think we're done here. Yeah. I that's, think that's a dad versus a mom. That's, that's lights good. out to me. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been, um, I've been showing my kids scary movies from like my childhood era, 80s kind of scary movies. And so um, I want to show them Jaws, but my kids, they love animals and they don't like it when in a movie, the animal is the villain. Uh -huh. Yeah. So like we watched Jurassic Park, they were freaked out, which was awesome, but they were disappointed that the animals were the villains. Oh, that's Some funny. of the animals were the villains. They didn't like that. So oh. I don't think Jaws is going to go down great, you know, from that perspective, which yeah. of course will make it way more enjoyable for me. <laughs> My kids have watched it and they love it. It's one of their favorite movies. <laughs> <laughs> My kids are a little twisted in their movie watching. <laughs> yeah. Well, everybody has different interests. Yeah. <laughs> Most kids are watching, you know, Frozen and Moana. My kids are watching Gremlins and Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right. Well, shall we, uh, shall we jump into the topic? Let's do it. Let's do it. Well, guys, I thought, uh, you know, we're in good amount of summer at this point. You know, we're, we're going to be in June. And at this point... The tax deadline is coming up. You know, we, we didn't have that April 15th deadline. So our July 15th deadline's coming up. And just having it in July is pretty weird for some people. It's, it's changing things up quite a bit. And um, this CARES Act that everyone has been talking about uh, for the last few weeks, um, that's a big one too. And that's changing up quite a bit of things. So I thought we would focus on how the CARES Act is really changing up uh, the playing field for retirement planning and for tax planning. So I thought we could kind of talk about um, how it's changed the RMD rules and how now you can suspend um, taking required minimum distributions this year. And then I was thinking we could talk about the early distribution rules in the CARES Act and then kind of go into the new loan rules for defined contribution plans. 
And then we'll pivot just a bit from retirement to tax planning, go into more of the changes to the qualified improvement property and all the different changes to the net operating losses. So how does that sound for an agenda? Me. Sounds great to me. It sounds like all tax stuff. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nicole, I'll let you kick it off then, um, since this is definitely your area. Like I said, like the we've got the deadline coming up. That's changing it quite a bit. But obviously, if people still need more time, they can file extensions, right? Yep. So I had a meeting with my staff the other day, and I told them June is the new March. Um, so where we're normally, you know, getting cranked up for tax season in March, we're now getting cranked up for tax season in June. Um, so we will be busy filing tax returns for the next month and a half. Um, so yes, the deadline has been extended to July 15th, which is both for filing and payment, as well as making IRA contributions. Um, if you do need additional time to file, you can still file an extension just like you normally would in April. We're just going to be filing those extensions in July, which will still give us until September and October um, to get those returns filed. So that part of it hasn't changed. Um, but yes, it's going to be a very interesting summer, that's for sure. <laughs> you know, do you know, did, they, did the extension apply to fiscal year uh, corporations or entities? So it essentially it applies to any return that was due between April 1 and July 15th. So any return due between April 1 and July 15th is now due July 15th. So if you had a fiscal year corporation that was due during that time period, mm -hmm. it's automatically extended until July mm -hmm. 15th. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, it is nice. And, you know, I, I would say less even because of everything that's going on in the world with the pandemic. But we needed the extension because of all the new tax laws they keep passing. <laughs> because yeah. we, it was like a full-time job keeping on top of the tax laws, let alone trying to get tax returns done. Yeah, most CPAs I've been talking to uh, have said, I thought last year was the worst tax season. <laughs> right. Oh, they hadn't seen anything. They hadn't seen 2020 yet. Yep. Yep. We all went into this tax season thinking, okay, nothing can be worse than last year. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, somebody was telling me, they're like, yeah, we had after uh, 2019, we had these meetings and we had got all these systems in place to like really smooth things out because we figured we figured out how to do it in 2019. Everything is going to be grand. And then uh, March 25th or whatever, you know, I think it was March 25th was the day the CARES Act went into right. effect. All of those plans went straight out the window. Yep, that's exactly right. Yeah, so it's uh, it's been very interesting. I think overall, I think most of the taxpayers are pretty happy about the extended deadline also. Um, I do find that we have a small subset of clients that um, really wanted their returns done by April 15th. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that had never filed an extension before. They were a little nervous about it. Um, so we still had some push to get stuff out by April 15th. Uh, but for most taxpayers, it gave them a chance to take a breath too. And, you know, we're still getting tax return information in today that we would normally gotten in back in April. Yeah. Has it, has it just sort of dragged, has it just uh, prorated everything or has it, has it just deferred everything to where now you're looking at June, like it's going to be like a normal March? Yeah. 
that's exactly where we're at. Um, that's what, on the last day of tax season. I always call my tax partner that lives in Wisconsin and have a conversation on the way into work. Like, yes, we're done. We did it. We made it through another tax season. And this year I called her on April 15th and I said, you know, this all sounded great until today when I realized that all we've done is delay our anxiety another three months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And probably blown up your summer vacation plans. If yes. That's you can have those right now. Yep, that too. <laughs> All right. So first, you guys, I was thinking we could talk about the RMDs. So a lot of people are really excited um, that the CARES Act um, has suspended taking required minimum distributions from defined benefit or defined contribution plans. So 401ks, IRAs. So, you know, normally... Um, uh, participants in a retirement plan and in those uh, defined contribution plans have to take a required minimum distribution. And after the SECURE Act, that's at age 72 now. Um, but the CARES Act has suspended it, so you do not have to do that for 2020, unless you want to. Um, but for a lot of people, you know, who've seen a lot of market volatility with uh, their accounts and, you know, maybe if it doesn't look so good anymore, this might be a really good time to kind of let the money sit in the account for a year and they don't have to worry about any big income tax liabilities. So, Nicole, have you seen a lot of people trying to take advantage of this? Definitely. Um, we have we have a lot of taxpayers that just do their RMD and maybe one lump sum towards the end of the year. For, so for those taxpayers, it was really easy. And they just essentially called the broker and said, I don't want to take it this year. Um, and like you said, that it's a big, it's a big tax liability. I and mean, we have some people that their RMDs are a hundred thousand and more. Um, that and that's usually one of their main sources of income. So it's a big tax change for them this year. They're gonna have be paying a lot less tax in 2020 because of that. Uh, for the taxpayers that take their RMDs more regularly, so we have some taxpayers that take them monthly. If they acted fast enough once this was passed, they were usually able to get their February payment back. Um, but a lot of times the 60-day rollover rule had already passed, so they were not able to get their January payment rolled back into the plan. So essentially what that means is that typically if you take money out of an IRA, you have 60 days to put it back into the IRA and so that it doesn't count as a distribution. Um, so they gave you the same thing, the same opportunity here. So when this passed in March, most people had time to go back and get their February payment put back into the plan. So some people are dealing with like a month of their RMD that they have to take. Um, and then I had a couple of clients that did the um, qualified charitable distribution where you can make contributions or distributions out of your IRA directly to a charity that had already made those. Uh, it's not taxable to them anyway, but I think they were a little sad that they didn't get to jump on the bandwagon with everybody else and not take their RMD. Yeah, and there's no there's no take backs on that qualified charitable contributions. You're once you do it, that's it. You're locked yep. in. You, you yeah. can't pay it back. You can't go ask the charity for the money back. <laughs> no, that would be very bad form anyway. <laughs> uh, but it also doesn't work in the eyes of the IRS. No, no, not at all. <laughs> there is um, I think there is one little carve out. There's an extension for rollovers uh, out of certain qualified plans. I think certain ERISA plans, you can, they've extended the rollover date until um, July 15th, but it just doesn't apply to that many people. Right. Or certainly not retirees. No, nope. The other, you, you were mentioning the 60-day the rollover rule. The other thing to 
always keep in mind with that rule is that it's a it's a single rollover per year so you can't do multiples of those once you do one like that's it there's no going back and unringing that bell and then doing another one in the same calendar year so you just have to be really cautious that you don't you don't do more than one if you do more than one then the consequences are potentially you've made a disqualifying contribution to your IRA and you can hit, get hit with penalties and uh, nobody wants that. So uh, everybody just has to realize like once you do it, that's it. Like you you make your choice once and then you got to wait another until another calendar year flips over before you can do it again. Yeah. And luckily uh, it seems like the brokers are aware of that because I've had a couple that have tried to do two different ones and they were told, no, they can't. So that's it sounds good. like the brokers are on top of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. There's a there's one little there's a weird little nuance in the way that the suspension works, and it has to do with a weird interplay between the Secure Act and the CARES Act. So the Secure Act, as Rachel, as you mentioned very rightly, changed the beginning date for when you have to start taking RMDs to age 72. So now you have to start taking your RMDs by April 1 of the year after you turn age 72. Okay, so this year is the first year of the SECURE Act. Um, but last year, it was pre-SECURE Act rules. So last year, the rule was 70 and a half. So had somebody turned 70 and a half in 2019, and they would have had to have taken their first distribution on April 1st of this year, that distribution also is getting extended. And so next year, they'll have to take two distributions uh, because they will have deferred basically their 2019 withdrawal plus their 2020 withdrawal. So they're going to kind of get doubled up. But if some, let's say somebody turned 70 and a half, like in January of, of 2019, and then they did nothing and they're like, I'm going to wait until the last possible moment to take my RMD. Now they basically get a two year deferral, which is kind of nice. Yeah. And, you know, just because Congress gave it to them, not because they did anything special. Right. <laughs> that was by chance. <laughs> it's just total, total chance. <laughs> Well, and then on, on, you know, with the 60-day rollover, there is a new part of this CARES Act that um, has new rules for IRAs for people that, or I guess it's not just IRAs, for IRAs and um, 401ks for people that have been affected by the COVID. And this one's a little bit different than the rest of the CARES Act. The rest of the CARES Act really applies to all, assuming everybody's been affected by COVID because of, you know, stay in um, shelter in place orders and that sort of thing. This one specifically is either you've been diagnosed with COVID, you have a spouse or dependent that's been diagnosed with COVID, or you have um, been furloughed or some other layoff that you've been directly affected. And if those apply to you, if one of those apply to you, then you're able to take up to $100,000 out of the plan. Um, and this is, if you're under 59 and a half, you would normally get a 10% penalty if you did that. Um, and with the CARES Act, they've essentially suspended that and said that no penalty if you've been directly affected. And then in addition to that, you have up to three years to do one of two things. You either have up to three years to put it back in the plan and it will be considered a rollover or you get to split your income tax burden of that over three years. So you'd essentially pick up a portion of it each year over three years. Um, so it's just less than the income tax burden of that in 2020. Yeah, and I had heard 
like right when the CARES Act came out, a lot of people talking about, well, if you had taken, let's say you took your RMD early, could you just say, well, my RMD was part of this $100,000 withdrawal, and then I can pay it back over three years. But as you point out, that only applies if it's a COVID-19 or coronavirus-related withdrawal. So it's not for everybody. It's only somebody who's been uh, diagnosed with COVID-19 or their spouse or dependent or they were you know, somehow affected from a work perspective. But it also actually it, it also applies to somebody whose work hours were reduced due yeah. to COVID-19 or because they couldn't get childcare. So it's like, it's a very broad definition of things that can affect you. I'm sure there was some politicking on what that definition said exactly. Um, so everybody really does, if you're going to do it, you really have to kind of look at that definition and read it real carefully and see whether you actually fit because there are some scenarios that maybe like off the top of your head, you wouldn't think would be included, but they actually are included. Yeah. And if you're the typical retired person that's getting RMDs, I'm guessing it'd be a, a harder hurdle to get over. Um, I mean, I think you'd really have to fall into that either I've been diagnosed or my spouse has been diagnosed because mm -hmm. um, most of them aren't working anymore. Um, so we don't have to worry about the whole furloughed or anything like that. So I think for the RMD ones, I think that's just a harder hurdle to get over. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. If you're, if they're retired, uh, it's tougher. If you're working and you're taking the money out and you're looking to take advantage of the, the 10% penalty exception, uh, the, so the so-called 72 T penalty exception, then, uh, I think then your, your life experience is probably more in line with the laundry list of things that are actually in the act for what counts, you know, what, what counts is that. Yeah, um, I agree. There's, there are, there's a couple of weird nuances with that. One is that it does not apply to a defined benefit plan. So if you have, if somebody is lucky enough to have a defined benefit plan, like a pension, this doesn't apply to that. It only applies to defined contribution plans being a, a retirement account that essentially only has the money you or your employer have contributed to it. And so the balance of what you're entitled to is dependent specifically on what's been paid in, not on a promise to pay you out a certain amount of money in the future. Uh, so that's only defined contribution plans. And then if, if the person is or is uh, younger than age 79 and a half, and they began taking early withdrawals, and the early withdrawals were being taken as what's called a series of substantially equal periodic payments, at, uh, otherwise known as SSEPP or SEP, depending on who in the industry you talk to, uh, then this rule does not give you license to change those distributions, at least not until the IRS in black and white says that that's the case. So what those rules say is you can take money out early, not be subject to, so early being before age 15 and a half, not be subject to the 10% penalty, but you have to take the withdrawals out as a series of substantially equal periodic payments. There's a couple of different ways that you calculate those payments, but they're basically like a, an annuity payment that comes out and they're roughly the same every year. They can, they can vary a little bit year to year, depending on what payment method you use. And they're supposed to, they're really calculated to last over your life expectancy so that these are not necessarily enormous payments that are coming out of the plan. But the rule is you may not modify the payment stream, the method and the amount that you're taking out, except under very narrow circumstances within a five-year period of when you began taking them out. And then you can't make additional contributions to the account once you start taking these SEP payments out. 
and that's a five-year period as well. So it can extend beyond age 59 and a half. So if you begin before age 59 and a half, this thing could leak into uh, years after 59 and a half where you're locked in for five years with this thing that you started. So if you then took out an additional amount because you say had a COVID-19 diagnosis and you wanted that additional amount to fit within the exception and not be subject to the penalty and not be subject to really penalties for violating the rules for these set payments, you're out of luck. And the penalty for violating the rules on the set payment is that you're deemed to have been subject to the penalty from the year you began taking the payments plus interest. So whatever 10% of the taxable amount would have been for every year that you've taken payments, you owe that amount in additional tax for those years plus interest that would have accrued from those years until now when you're paying it off. So it's kind of a nasty little twist. I haven't seen any IRS guidance specifically on it. And in that particular area of the world, uh, the rules are really technical and strict. And so I would never want any client to take a risk on it because you're, the chances are your fingers are going to get burnt unless you have really clear instructions from the IRS to the, to the, uh, to the contrary. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, and I did want to point out, since you made it very clear on this one, that it's um, subject to defined contribution, not defined benefit, that the RMD suspension of the RMDs is for the same thing. So the suspension yeah. of the RMDs is just for defined contribution, not defined benefit plan. Right. So that's like everybody. <laughs> very few people have defined uh, benefit plans. I actually have quite a few clients that do. Do you have a lot of doctor clients? Yeah, they're all this they're, is very well, popular. All, yes, but a yeah. lot of them are doctors. Yeah. Yeah, very popular in the medical industry to kind of top up those retirement accounts as much as humanly possible. Yep. Uh, which, which I'm convinced that defined benefit plans are just voodoo magic. <laughs> <laughs> You call the TPA, like, how much do you think we're going to be able to do this year? Well, it depends. What do you want to do? Like, uh -huh. how does that work? <laughs> uh -huh. Yes, they're, they're very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> they're, yeah, they're, we, we had a conversation with Isaac Rothschild, um, whom I think you know pretty well, too. Mm -hmm. And we were talking to Isaac about like asset protection. And we talked about that, like the, there's a carve out in Arizona that exempts uh, uh, retire qualified retirement accounts from the claims of, of your creditors. And so aside from the tax benefits, you know, most of these medical groups will be motivated to, to just put as much money as they can into their, you know, max out their defined contribution contributions and then just start socking a bunch of money in these defined benefit plans because the plans are then protected from creditors. And of course, all the doctors are really nervous about getting sued for malpractice and having some asset protection. And that's like easy pickings on the yeah. list of things they could do to protect their assets. Yeah, I would say that 99% of our clients with defined benefit plans are doctors. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, it's really interesting to me because it's not as popular with lawyers. Yeah. No, I don't. Nor accountants. <laughs> we don't get sued enough, I guess. <laughs> That's a good thing. <laughs> yes, I agree. Please don't start suing me. All right. <laughs> well, no, so there's also some uh, new rules in the CARES Act about uh, taking loans from defined contribution plans. Um, so kind of our old rule um, a plan participant was able to take a loan of up to $50,000 or half of their vested account balance. And then typically they pay those loans over a five-year period. But now the CARES Act has changed that so that the uh, participant can borrow up to 100% 
of the vested account balance or $100,000, whichever is less. And um, now the CARES Act has also given them an extra year to pay it back. So essentially they can have a six year uh, repayment period. So that's another great opportunity now for someone to take advantage of. Yeah, definitely. And then they've, they've also, again, because they're changing things, these things so fast and furious that companies don't, you know, these plans don't have time to get documents amended before participants are going to come to them and ask, hey, I need this $100,000 loan. So under the CARES Act, essentially, they've allowed plans to operate as if they had this plan amendment in place, um, as long as they get amended by, I think it's the end of 2021. Um, so as long as they actually amend the plan to fit these guidelines by 2021, they can just act now as if they've already had those plan amendments in place. That's a really good point too. You brought up, Nicole, that yeah, for someone to take advantage of this, you do have to claim it. You you actually have to go to, you know, whoever your uh, retirement provider is. And, you know, you can't just get all this. You have to actually tell them, hey, I, I do want to take advantage of these opportunities. And, you know, at that point, then it's okay working with whoever the retirement company is to kind of, you know, get the ball rolling on these. Hopefully they'll be good about recognizing when somebody is using one of these little carve outs, because most of the time the issue is not, uh, it's not necessarily doing the, doing the little transaction that causes say the withdrawal or, you know, whatever it is that you're doing. The issue is making sure that you get a 1099 R that properly reports what happened. And I haven't seen a new 1099 R, maybe they're working on it and uh, nobody's worried about it because it's not due till next year and they have bigger fish to fry at the moment. Um, but I think that's going to be the real big issues. And people are going to have to be very tuned in to the fact <clears throat> that the financial institutions are dealing with this issue on a first impression basis, just like everybody else. And so they might not always get it right when they report it. And there may need to be some extra due diligence on looking at the 1099 R's to make sure they're correct. And then following up with financial institutions to get corrected 1099 R's to the extent that you need them and to get that done like in a pretty timely basis um, so that taxpayers aren't just languishing, not knowing exactly what to do or having a 1099R that says that they did one thing when they did something else. And now they're kind of stuck in two minds where they can't really report it's different from what's on the 1099R, uh, but they really shouldn't be reporting it improperly on their return. So they're just sort of stuck in this no man's land. I think there's going to be some of that next year. You don't have to worry about it here for a few months, Nicole. Isn't that refreshing? It is refreshing, but I think you're exactly correct. We might, and I mean, nothing against the financial institutions because I know they're doing the best they can, but my experience for the regular RMDs, for the regular withdrawals from IRAs, they seem to do pretty well when there's special circumstances as usual when we find that 1099Rs are a lot of times not correct. They either have a wrong code, they have the wrong amount. Um, so you bring up a very good point of it is going to take a little bit more due diligence reviewing those and make sure they were prepared correctly. Yeah. And maybe to flesh that out for anybody who's not clear on what we're talking about. So the financial institution has to give you a 1099 that reports the transaction and then they have to send a copy of basically the same 1099 to the IRS so the IRS knows what happened just like an employer has to give you a W-2 and then send that to the IRS and then the IRS can match up the information they're getting on those forms with whatever it is that you're reporting and the 1099-R has a bunch of, I can't remember how many boxes, it's, it's a very large number of boxes 
14, 15, 16, something like that, uh, where the, the financial institution has to put in the right numbers in the correct box that corresponds to the correct transaction that you engaged in during the year in order for everything on your turn, your return and their form that then gets into the hands of the IRS to match up. So it's not, you know, to your point, I, I, I recognize fully that it's not an easy task for financial institutions to get everything done correctly. And it's not uncommon for those 1099s to be incorrect in the first instance. And then there's a little bit of back and forth to get them corrected. Yeah. And I think, I mean, again, I think financial institutions are doing all they can, but I think there's a lot of times a, a breakdown between like, you may have somebody like say TCI that you know, is your main contact, they know everything about you inside and out, but they're not the ones preparing the 1099Rs. Mm -hmm. Charles Schwab is. Mm -hmm. um, so again, I think that's where a lot of the breakdown comes down is a lot of times there's multiple people in between in those steps. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the client and the financial advisor, uh, they understand what's happening, but then they have to communicate that to yet another third party that they do not control. And then yeah. the 1099R comes from that third party. I, I always feel a little bit sorry for the financial advisors every year around tax season because I know this is an issue that they're dealing with on an annual basis and inevitably they've got a pile of 1099s that were issued incorrectly and they're the ones that have to go back and get things changed and deal with the financial institutions to get the right 1099s issued. This is just going to add one more thing on their checklist of things that they're going to have to double check next year. Well, I guess maybe one good point is usually the financial advisors are getting calls when we give them their tax return and they owe a bunch of tax because they had huge capital gains during the year and uh -huh. they didn't realize it because they didn't see them all together in one number. I guess in 2020, they won't have to worry about that. So more time folks on 1099. They'll be more excited about all those capital losses they could carry right. $3,000 increments indefinitely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's going to be it, this it, I, this tax season is obviously a unique tax season, but I, I think next year is going to be interest, interesting as well, because there's a lot of stuff that kind of, if it doesn't directly, which we'll talk about a little bit on it when we talk about the net operating loss issues, if it doesn't directly actually flip into the next year, like it, it has an effect next year because it's happening now and then you're going to have to report it in one year. Yep. Yes. And, you know, I, during the middle of April, when I would normally be frustrated because I'm trying to get tax returns out the door, I was frustrated with all these new tax acts that they kept passing. And I was talking to one of our retired partners and I said, I, you know, I just, I, we, I've worked here for 20 years. Like I've dealt with new tax acts all the time. I can't figure out why this one's frustrating me so much. And I figured out is they're passing things that take effect either immediately or retroactively that you are having to figure out on the fly. Usually they pass a tax act and it goes into effect like at the end of the year. And you've got months to figure out, wrap your brain around it. And this one, not only were we figuring out on the fly, but IRS was figuring out on the fly. So they'll pass something and then now they're just continually changing the rules of how to actually apply it. Um, so yeah, I think that's going to lead to a very interesting tax season next year. Yeah, it's amazing. It's a little bit of a lesson on tax policy and how tax policy actually gets implemented where you have a statute that gets enacted like the CARES Act and the statute itself could be very extensive. I mean, the CARES Act was 800 pages or so. The, the prior act that came out 
at, uh, at the end of 2017, right at the beginning of 2018, that was another 900 pages, just the statute of new tax laws. And it's very, can be just very complex on its face. And then the IRS picks it up and they issue regulations for some of it, but not all of it. And the regulations themselves are hundreds of pages long. And then the IRS, as they're getting inundated by comments from taxpayers directly or from their representatives or from professional groups like the AICPA or the American Bar Association, et cetera, on all these different weird circumstances that nobody thought about when they pass the statute and they then start issuing non-regulation guidance, you know, notices and uh, revenue procedures and revenue rulings and things to just try to get information out to taxpayers to flesh out all the many issues that could arise. And even after they do all of that, there are still things that are not covered by any of the guidance. And you can run across situations where you have no idea what the answer is. Oftentimes when I come when I come up with one of those, like I think I've invented it. You know, like somewhere in my mind, I'm like, oh my goodness, I created a problem. No one is talking about this. So obviously I'm I, I just invented it. It's not a real problem. But it is, it is a real problem. Like I can see right there, it's not covered anywhere. This this set of circumstances is not covered in the act. And it's just it never ceases to amaze me how even though there is this voluminous uh, process and you just get mountains of paper to sift through and read through, that even after that, you can have circumstances that are not covered and still gray and unclear. And then somebody like you has to report it on a return and sign their name on the return that it's that it's filed under penalties of perjury and correct. Right. Well, especially when they do super crazy things, like I think we're going to jump to the topic um, is with like the qualified improvement property in the NOL, where not only are they affecting tax law that's happening right now, they went back and affected tax law on closed years. I mean, closed in the matter of we've already filed returns on. So both the qualified improvement property and net operating loss, these changes actually took effect at the beginning of 2018. So that just adds to the complication and Again, some of these things, so like um, the qualified improvement property, so just a little bit of background on that. Uh, qualified improvement property is um, essentially it's improvements to a building. So if I own a building and I'm leasing it out to a business and I make tenant improvements on that building, as long as they're to the interior structure of the building, then those are considered qualified improvement property. Those have historically been 15-year property. And when they pass um, the last major tax act back in 2017, there was an heir, essentially like a Scribner's heir, um, and they became 39-year property. They forgot to say that they would be 15-year property. And it just became a sticking point and it never got fixed. So one of the things that happened in the CARES Act is that they said, okay, let's fix that. And we'll fix it back to the beginning of 2018. And so essentially what that means is it's the difference between those improvements being 39-year life, depreciated over 39 years, or 15 years, which on the surface is, okay, well, that's half, except for the fact that when they are 15-year life, they're then eligible for bonus depreciation. And bonus depreciation is 100% bonus depreciation. So essentially, if I went in and did $100,000 worth of TIs on a building that I own for a new tenant, then I can expense that entire $100,000 off in one year under this uh, the, the way it's been fixed under the CARES Act. Um, so what we're having to do is we're having to go back into the 2018 returns, figure out what who had 39 
nine-year property placed in service in 2018, and then go look in those individual returns and see, was that qualified improvement property? And then if so, you have two options. Um, so you have the option of either going back and amending 2018 to, to essentially fix that and treat that as 15-year and take the bonus depreciation, or you can do what's called a change of accounting method, um, which is Form 3115. And essentially what that does is you get to, without having to go back and amend when you file your 2019 or if you've already filed 2019, your 2020 return, then you file it with a change of accounting method and you get to essentially take all that depreciation that you should have taken in 18 and you get to take it in the current year. Um, and you know, some of the, we've kind of looked at some of the advantages of, of those. And one of the advantages is I think we'll talk about next, which is net operating losses. Um, and depending on where you are with net operating losses may determine what year you want to go back and take, um, whether you want to amend or whether you want to file the change of accounting method. And the, the, the one other little twist on the change of accounting method is that you, you cannot change your accounting method without getting the IRS's approval. So that's why you have to file a special form because you have to notify the IRS, I'm doing this if you say I can, pretty please say I can. And then once they approve you, then you, you can do it. You just can't do it on your own. So once you've, once you've selected a method of accounting for tax purposes, like a 39 year depreciation schedule for property, you're locked into that unless you can go back and amend like you were just describing or you can change your method of accounting but only with irs's permission so there's there's a little bit of that i i'm hoping that they're just going to give that permission as a matter of course you don't you know it's not going to be some sort of fight no, and I, I'm pretty sure that that one falls under. So there's two different types of change of accounting methods. One that's an automatic change that you get just by filing the 3115 and one that you have to actually do have to wait for IRS's approval to get back. And this one falls under the automatic change. So it should be pretty straightforward. Yeah, that makes sense. Other than the complicated stuff of figuring out what exactly you want to do. Yeah, and figuring out what taxpayers it even applies to. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so let's, so let's flush that out then just a little bit uh, because you mentioned the net operating losses. So under the 2017 uh, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the TCJA, that's actually not the official name of the bill. I can't remember what the official name was, but it was horrendous. Right. Uh, but everybody called it the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. But at any rate, under that act, which really went into effect in 2018, uh, they changed the rules so that net operating losses, that being the net amount of, of losses you kind of have from carrying on your business from one year to the next, that amount could only be deducted in a future year up to 80% of your taxable income. So there was always this like 20% margin that you were just going to have to pay tax on. You couldn't net out to zero on your taxable income by using your net operating losses. That was a little, uh, that was a tax savings or tax revenue raising uh, provision in that act. And then they got rid of the ability to carry net operating losses, say in a current year back to prior years. They said, nope, none of that. That doesn't, that doesn't apply. Okay. So we got used to that in 2018 and then we got really used to it in 2019. And now in 2020, it's out the window. So they changed the rules in the CARES Act. So now you can take 100% of net operating loss deductions, carrybacks and carry forwards for pre-2021 tax years. So 2020, for example. Uh, you can take 100% of NOL deductions for carry forwards 
from a pre-2018 tax year into a post-2020 tax year. So this is like the dumbest rule on the planet, but basically what it's trying to say is if you have a carry for an NOL carry forward from before the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, you can carry it forward into a year after 2020. So I'm sure someone could explain to me what the logic of that is. Uh, I don't know if any of us can explain the logic of that, but that's just understand like conceptually that that's the, then they did this weird thing where in a, in a post 2020 year, um, you can, you can take carry forwards from 2018. So once the tax cuts and jobs act was enacted and later, but you can only use them for the basic, you, you're basically subject to the 80% taxable income uh, limitation. That's sort of the rule. Like, so you they sort of take the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act year 2018, and they keep it in play for carry forwards. Okay. Then if you have net operating losses in 2018, 2019, and 2020, you can carry them back for five years. And if you have net operating losses from before 2018, so 2017 and earlier, you can carry them forward for 20 years. And if you have <laughs> net operating losses from after 2017, you can carry them forward for one year. This is so easy. Like everybody can remember these rules. They're, they're not, not, definitely not the least rememberable rules on the face of the planet. Uh, the important part is that the way that the net operating rules work is that under normal circumstances, non-CARES Act circumstances, really, you first have to carry back and then you can carry forward. And so you carry back to, so if you have five, uh, like a five-year carry back period, like you have to carry back to your five years first, then if you have anything left over, you can carry that forward. But the CARES Act throws a little curveball in there and says, ah, however, if you're carrying back to one of these five years, you can elect out of using your net operating losses for any of those five years. And so when I read, after I read all these confusing rules and I was like, what is going on? And that, you know, I need a chart to figure out what, what, what year gets what, uh, then they throw this election on you. And it basically means I am really glad I'm not preparing the tax returns. Gee, thanks. Because <laughs> <laughs> it just makes it so complicated. It's just such a complicated analysis. Yeah. And I, I honestly, I mean, I feel sorry for us for having to figure it out, but I feel sorry for our software com uh, company of trying to figure out That's how to it. make the software yes. work. <laughs> That's it. Exactly. Like the software companies and for, for anybody who doesn't know to maybe peel the the veil back here on the accounting industry. And this is not a knock against the accounting industry at all, but it's like uh, most accounting firms rely pretty heavily on a tax preparation software. This is not your run of the mill tax preparation software. Like this is very robust software, complex software. And every time they change something in the tax law, like somebody has to go in and update that software. So when they do a major change like this, it's a major change to the software. It's a big deal. Oh yeah, but we use Pro System, CCH Pro System yeah. in our office, and that's our running joke of, well, I must be wrong. If Pro System says that, I must be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I have found them wrong a couple of times, but not very often. <laughs> yeah, they tell you you're wrong, you gotta get the books out. Yeah, right? Uh -oh. <laughs> yeah, so I, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe my sense is, is wrong, but I don't know, at least among the accountants that I've been interacting with, if the uh, shadow of the Paycheck Protection Program is just so long and so large that they're not 
realizing that they have this NOL issue waiting for them? We, uh, we haven't, we actually, so we have, uh, again, we have this robust, crazy software that does amazing things. And one of the things it does is called a data scan. So I can go in and I can pick any field in the tax return and scan all of our tax returns for that field. So right when this was passed, I went in and scanned all of our individuals and all of our corporations for net operating, for two things, net operating losses or 2018 current losses. Um, so we've already started to go back and amend or well, so we've started to go back and do these NOLs. The interesting part is, is that in addition to the things that Brent had talked about of them um, getting rid of in 2020 or 2018, 2019, 2020, was also there with the um, T, with the tax act that passed in uh, December of 17, one of the things that they also included was a limitation on business losses. So you could have a $900,000 loss, but you were limited on how much you could actually take in that one year. Um, and so like we have a taxpayer who started a new business in 2017 by 2018, he still wasn't fully, he was still spending way more than he was making. So he had like a $900,000 loss in 2018 that was limited to $500,000. So like on him, what we're doing is we're going back, we're going to amend 2018. We're going to get more of that business loss that's eligible and then NOL back five years um, and the, and he paid a ton of tax returns in year four and year five. Um, so we're gonna be able to get a bunch of tax back in those years. Um, but one thing to note on that too is that you have two ways to claim an NOL. So for net operating loss, let's say you go back five years, you have the choice of either going back to that fifth year back and actually amending that return and claiming that NOL, or the IRS gives you a simplified method, which for individuals is a 1045 and for corporations is a form 1139, which is essentially kind of like a quick refund application. Um, so you get to report, let's say you're carrying back to all five years, you get to report all five years on one form. You don't have to go back and amend every form separately. Um, now the quirk with those forms is they're typically due by the end of the tax year in which you are filing. So for a 2018 return that was going to be filed in 2019, the 1045 would be due by the end of 2019. Well, obviously we've already passed that date by the time they passed this tax law. Um, so what they did is they gave us like a six month extension. So if you're wanting to do a 1045 or a form 1139 for 2018, those do need to get in by June 30th. Um, otherwise you have to actually go back and amend all of those returns to collect that NOL. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for reminding me. I'd forgotten about that extension um, on those returns. There's also, a, there's another little weird little quirk. I don't know if this is going to matter for anybody, but I'll, I'll just throw it out there. So, uh, because I, I deal uh, quite a bit in like international type transactions. So part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was that they were trying to force the corporate international corporate tax structure into what's called a territorial tax structure, meaning that you get taxed in the jurisdiction where you're earning the income, not getting taxed in the U.S. on all of your worldwide income, which was the, the old rule, sort of a patchwork. It still is sort of a patchwork. We sort of have a modified somewhat something hybrid in between territorial tax system. But as part of that, 
if you had an interest in a foreign corporation, certain varieties of foreign corporations, and that foreign corporation had some, some retained earnings that hadn't been paid out to you, you had to pick up all of those undistributed uh, accumulated earnings that were in the company as if you received a distribution. So you had, you had to pick up the income like right then. And there was the way they had set it up, there was really no wiggle room. There was no way to get out of it. The, the hitch was that they allowed you to defer paying the tax over an eight-year period. But if you have a refund in any of those eight years, you have to apply the, the refund first to the amount that you owed on that, that little uh, taxable event. It's a, a 965 uh, inclusion amount. So when somebody is then using NOLs now, there, there's a connection here. So when you use NOLs now and you're going to go back and amend or you're going you're to claim your refund from a prior year and you have this 965 deferral, people have to realize that once they do it and they have, they, they've generated a refund from a prior year, that refund is going to get charged against the 965 deferral first. That's the little quid pro quo with the deferral. Um, but you can elect out of allocating the NOL to 965 years. So if you had a year before 2018 where you could get a refund, you can you can elect out of using the NOL in say 2018 when you had the 965 issue or 19 when you have the 965 issue and then go before that and, and push your NOLs into a year where you won't be generating a, a refund in a year where you have this deferred 965 inclusion amount. All right, that was a mouthful. So I, I apologize, but they just recognize that certain people who had interests in foreign corporations had this issue in 2018 that they were able to defer for eight years, but using your NOLs can actually cause a little bit of an acceleration on paying that tax and you may not get the full refund you thought you were getting unless you're very strategic about the way that you're allocating those NOLs. Does anybody else's brain hurt? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I know mine does. After that back and forth and carry forward, I'm just, oh, goodness. Uh. We started off so well because we were talking about Jaws. I know, right? You know? <laughs> and it just it just went downhill quick. Let's go back to Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> Man-eating animals. All right. <laughs> I can't wait to show that to my kids. It's going to be so much fun. Because we have man-eating tax laws right now. <laughs> yeah. It's feeling that way. It does feel that way. The amazing thing is we barely scratched the surface on the CARES I, Act. I know. Mm -hmm. We didn't even get into PPP. Oh, man. We avoided it. Congratulations. Somehow, we, we didn't even talk about the Paycheck Protection Program. Uh, that that will be a conversation for another day, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, we really appreciate you uh, joining us and you know lending your thoughts and expertise and time and and children in the background of your video. That was very fun. <laughs> well, thank you. I really enjoyed uh, being part of this. Yeah. Thanks for doing it. We'll have to do it again sometime. Yeah, for sure. All right. Take care. All right. We'll talk to you guys soon. If you're enjoying what we're doing with the podcast, please subscribe and follow us on social at Wealth and Law and follow our blog, wealthandlaw.com. See you there.